Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I want to take a moment to let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community in the next little bit. Namely, Easter weekend is coming, and it's coming quickly. And so we'll be having three Good Friday services at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., and 11.45 a.m. And then for Saturday and Sunday, it's actually the normal service schedule, but with an added sunrise service at 7 a.m. in the Cardo. And so if you can't join us in person for any of those, there will be an online liturgy as per usual, as well as an online video resource for our Good Friday liturgy. And the best way to know what's going on here in this Southview community is by checking out our weekly viewpoint. And you can find a link to our viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. But if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form, so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now, today, no matter how you're joining with us, may your hearts be open and expectant, Because God is here and Jesus invites you to bring all that you are and all that you're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Thank you for joining us for our online liturgy. I just want to begin by highlighting the high point of our gathering is to come around the communion table. And this week we've actually brought it up front uh, to even highlight it that much more. Just the, the focal point of our gathering together is to participate together at the Lord's table. And we will do that at the conclusion of the sermon. And just want to uh, prepare you for that, that that is coming. So looking forward to taking communion together. I want to just begin with a question and, uh, and just to ask, when is the last time you stopped to gaze upon something or someone? When's the last time something maybe caught your attention and you paused whatever you were doing just to fix your eyes and to gaze upon that sight? A couple weeks ago, I went to pick up my daughter at Ambrose University And as I was driving towards the school, I decided to stop for a Starbucks, of course. So I was driving down 17th Avenue and went past where Ambrose, where the turnoff would be, and and kept going on 17th Ave and came across a bit of a crest in the road and and it dipped down. And as I came over that little hill on 17th Ave, I could just see the mountains displayed in the background. And it caught my attention. Uh, I was driving, so I had to focus on driving. Uh, But if I could have, I would have stopped and just gazed at the mountains. It was a beautiful day. The sky was blue. The sun was shining. The mountains were crisp, and they caught my attention. I wanted to gaze upon them. The mountains are uh, a part of God's creation that I could gaze upon regularly. I love looking at the mountains. I grew up in southern Ontario, and we don't have anything like the Rocky Mountains out there. Uh, I married uh, my wife, Tammy. She grew up in Winnipeg, and so we moved from Winnipeg to Calgary uh, a little over 20 years ago, and both of us love the mountains. Anytime that we could see uh, a glimpse of the mountains, we just would, would soak it in. 
And uh, we love going to Canmore and Banff and uh, Kananaskis and just spending time in the mountains. And what we love about the mountains is uh, their magnificence and their beauty and just the fact that you can look at the mountains from different angles or depending on the time of day and the lighting on the mountains or the weather in the sky, whether there's clouds or if it's clear, the mountains take on a different look almost every time you look at them. They're, they're never quite the same, and you, you see new aspects of them. And so we just love gazing uh, at the mountains. So when's the last time you stopped and gazed upon something? I want to introduce a word that's going to show up in our passage that we're going to be looking at in a moment, and the word is behold. And I want to just take a look at this word and, and define it for us. Um, because it's, it's going to be a big part of what we talk about as we look in John 19 in a moment. But the word behold, if you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, it's defined like this. To behold is to perceive through sight or apprehension. It's to see, or it's to gaze upon, uh, to observe. So to behold something is to see it, to perceive it, or to gaze upon or observe it. And I want to invite you today, as we open God's word, and as we look at John 19, verses 1 to 16, I want to invite you to gaze upon Jesus in this passage. The word behold is going to show up, and it's like an invitation for us to behold Jesus, to to look at him, to gaze upon him, to kind of pause and set aside whatever else is going on in our heads, whatever circumstances we're facing, whatever's going on in life right now, I just want to invite you to to pause and to gaze upon Jesus. We're in the final 24 series, looking at the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. And a few weeks ago, uh, Clyde started us off by looking at the Last Supper, and, uh, and that sort of kicked off this final 24 hours of Jesus' life as he approached the cross. And so we had uh, a look at communion or the Lord's Supper. Uh, we looked at Jesus' arrest. Uh, Brett uh, preached Sam's sermon for us and talked about uh, Jesus' uh, arrest and uh, this idea of who do you seek And then last week, Clyde introduced us to a new kind of kingdom and a new kind of king. And we're kind of picking up on this theme of looking at Jesus as a different kind of king. And today, I just want to invite you to behold him. Behold your king. So we're going to look at John 19, verses 1 to 16. And if you've got your Bible with you, I would encourage you to open it to John 19. Or if you have a Bible app, uh, to open the app and and keep it open before you as we go through this passage today. Uh, We'll be referencing different verses throughout this passage. And I just want to begin by reading uh, this passage for us. And so as we read, remember, friends, this is the word of God. This is John 19, beginning in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! 
Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king! And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. Let's just pause and invite Jesus to speak to us from his word as we open it today. So Jesus, as we open your word, we invite you to open our ears to hear what you have to say. Open our eyes to see you as we gaze upon you today. Open our heart and our will to receive from you and be willing to be changed by you. So meet with us in these moments, we pray in your name. Amen. So I mentioned this word, behold, shows up. And uh, the first time it shows up is in uh, chapter 19, verse 5, when Pilate sort of presents Jesus to the crowd and he says, behold, the man. Behold, the man. Now, Pilate's presentation of Jesus in this passage is interesting, and I think John, the author, is using a lot of irony to get us to see Jesus for who he really is, because Pilate really doesn't know who Jesus truly is. Pilate presents Jesus to the crowd. He says, behold the man, and he almost does it in mocking fashion. And so John, the author here, is sort of using Pilate's Uh, uncertainty about Jesus and Pilate's um, confusion maybe about who Jesus is, and he's using that to present to us a true picture of Jesus. So I want to invite us to behold Jesus, behold this man, and to sort of gaze upon him. And we're going to look at four aspects or four ways that John invites us to see Jesus in this passage. And so the first way that we see Jesus is as the suffering servant. So in the first three verses here in chapter 19, uh, Pilate sort of introduces Jesus as a bit of a mock king. And then this mock king has sort of echoes of prophetic words from Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. So let's look at these first three verses where Jesus is kind of introduced as this mock king. It says that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. 
And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. So here in this scene, we have Jesus. He's been flogged, which is a, a brutal form of persecution. He's, been, he's taken quite a beating. And the soldiers take Jesus, and they put a crown of thorns on his head, and they put a purple robe, which is a sign of, of, um, of kingly authority. It's a, a sign of royalty. And so these soldiers sort of dress Jesus up as this mock king. And then Pilate presents him to the crowd. And when he says, behold, the man. And this mock king, as we see this description of Jesus, if you're familiar at all with the words in Isaiah, there's kind of echoes of what the prophet Isaiah talked about when he predicted this suffering servant that would come. So let's look at Isaiah 53, uh, verses 3 to 5. The prophet Isaiah says, He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. So we have this picture of this suffering servant uh, being rejected uh, and, and smitten and struck and afflicted and going through all this suffering. And then in verse 5, it says, but there's sort of this purpose to the suffering. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So as we consider the mock king in John 19 and we consider the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, there's some parallels. Jesus was punished. Jesus was rejected. Jesus suffered and he was mocked. And as we look at these words from Isaiah, it's very similar. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was esteemed not. You know, these parallel pictures And what Isaiah points out to us is there's some purpose in the suffering. There's some purpose in the punishment that Jesus took. And the purpose was was this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. This suffering servant came and laid down his life so that we could have peace with God. We could have forgiveness of sin. We could have healing in him. By his wounds, we are healed. So Pilate here in John 19 intended to present Jesus as a mock king, but the prophet Isaiah had uh, identifies a purpose in Jesus' suffering. He was the suffering servant who came to bring peace with God, to bring healing for the broken parts of our lives. And that healing could be spiritual healing. It could be emotional healing. It could be physical healing. Jesus came to bring peace and to bring healing. So that's the first aspect of how Jesus is shown to us here in John 19. A second picture or a second view or a second angle would be that of the second Adam. Now let me just explain that a little bit. If we look at the book of John as a whole... There's some parallels with the book of Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. 
It shows how the world was created. It's this, the beginnings of God's work in the world, his creation, and uh, the beginnings of how his plans unfolded. And then when we look at the book of John, it's almost like a book of new beginnings. The very first verse in John says, in the beginning. The very first verse in Genesis says, in the beginning. There's some parallels between these two books. And when we consider uh, Pilate's presentation of Jesus here in John 19, when he says, behold the man, those exact same words were used in Genesis 3, verse 22, when God was talking about the first Adam, the firstborn over creation. And in Genesis 3, 22, when God says, behold the man, this is after the fall, after Adam's disobedience. So God created humanity. He put uh, humanity in charge of, of all of creation, and he gave them some instructions, and they disobeyed. And because of their disobedience, they were cursed. Sin and death entered the world through Adam. And so when we hear this title, Behold the Man, John, our, our writer here in the Gospel of John, is sort of awakening our ears to, to remember back to those words in Genesis when God talked about Adam, Behold the Man. And in Adam, came sin and death, but the contrast that is, is in Jesus, Jesus came to reverse the effects of sin and death. Jesus came to bring life. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So if we consider the man Adam, sin and death came into the world through him. If we consider the man Jesus, we know that he came to reverse the effects of sin and death. He came to bring life. In the book of John, reference to Jesus as life, uh, there's 43 references throughout the book of John referring to Jesus as the life or Jesus as the one in whom we find life or Jesus the one who gives life or Jesus being eternal life. Life in Jesus is mentioned 43 times. And one of the maybe most known verses in John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so when we see Pilate introduce Jesus and say, behold the man, we are to picture Jesus as this second Adam who came to bring life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have new life in Christ. Sin and death are reversed as we embrace Jesus in our life. He is the source of life and the sustainer of life, both for the present and for eternity. So when we look at Jesus as the second Adam, we are to think about this reality of new life that's found in him. A third aspect or a third angle that we might look at Jesus is, uh, shows up in this title, the Son of God, in John chapter 19, verse 7. Let me just read that for us as we continue through our passage. John 19, 7 says, The Jews answered him, answered Pilate, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And so the Jews are acknowledging that Jesus claimed to be the son of God, and they're saying that's the reason that he should be crucified because 
we have no king but God himself, and Jesus is, is making this claim that he's the son of God, they're saying it's blasphemous, and he should be crucified as a result. Now, this title, the son of God, is a title that's packed with meaning. Again, in the book of John, the title, son of God, shows up nine times, and reference to Jesus as God's son shows up another 20 times. So 29 times in the book of John is reference or uh, the implication that Jesus is the Son of God. And there's this question where the Jews are, are accusing him that he, there's no way he can be the Son of God. And here we have Pilate who's maybe considering, is he really the Son of God? And there's this question, is Jesus the Son of God? And, and what does that mean? So that title is packed with meaning. It could talk about Jesus' uh, intimate relationship with his Heavenly Father, you know, the, the relationship between father and son and, and how God spoke at Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. There's this intimacy between Jesus and his father. There's this idea that as the son of God, Jesus is the exact representation of God in our world. There's another idea that in, as the son of God, Jesus came to uh, live his life of full obedience to the will of the father. But here in our passage, as we consider this title, the son of God, we have to consider that it's directly related to the idea of power and authority, specifically the, the notion of divine kingship. Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's, he's a different kind of king over a different kind of kingdom, just like Clyde talked about last week. And so when we consider this title, Son of God, we need to acknowledge uh, an aspect of power and authority around Jesus. Let's read on in our passage uh, in verse 8 to 12. So when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So Pilate is in a bit of a predicament here. If what Jesus, if this claim that Jesus really is the Son of God, if that's true, it has implications on Pilate's life. Because in the Roman Empire, Caesar was king, and Pilate's position of leadership was under the kingship of Caesar. And Pilate is sort of forced with this dilemma that if Jesus really is the Son of God, and if his kingship is from heaven, he's got this divine power and authority over all the kingdoms of the earth— then if that really is true, that's going to have direct implications on Pilate's life. And so the Jews kind of point that out to Pilate at the end of that passage in verse 12, when they said, everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And they say, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. And so they're pushing Pilate to say, if you believe that Jesus really is the son of God, then Caesar really isn't king. And therefore you really shouldn't have the position that you have. And so Pilate kind of takes his hands off and begins to turn Jesus over to the Jews. He, he wants to abdicate his responsibility. 
But we're left with this question. Is Jesus really the son of God? Is he the king of a heavenly kingdom? Now we need to remember that in the book of John, John's main purpose is uh, related to this. So if you remember uh, these verses that were shared a couple of weeks ago in John 20, this is the purpose of John writing his book, John 20, verses uh, 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote his gospel to convince us that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And there's people throughout the gospel who would testify, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. So where Pilate had his doubts about Jesus, John is trying to remove all doubt. Jesus truly is the Son of God. And as we consider him, as we gaze upon him in this dynamic as the Son of God, we need to gaze upon his power and authority as the King of kings and Lord of lords, the king of a different kind of kingdom. So the last aspect we'll look at as we gaze upon Jesus and behold him today is this image of him as the Lamb of God. Look at chapter 19, verse 14, just the the beginning of uh, verse 14. And it, it points out the time that this scene takes place. And it says, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was the day of preparation of Passover. This is important for us to know because as we consider some of the irony around uh, this passage and how John is trying to introduce us to Jesus and present him to us, if we consider that it's the day of preparation for Passover, we need to, we need to kind of imagine what's going on in, the, in this scene and in Jerusalem as a whole. So Passover was a feast that the Jewish people were to recognize on an annual basis. And the Passover feast and the Passover um, uh, festival was all about remembering the story of God in Exodus, how God delivered his people from Egypt. And so what would be happening right now, while this scene is taking place that we're looking at, households throughout Jerusalem would be choosing a lamb from their flock, a spotless lamb without blemish, And they would be taking that lamb and they would begin slaughtering these sheep throughout all these households. And every household would slaughter their sheep and they would take the blood of that lamb and they would smear the door frames of their houses in remembrance of what took place back in Exodus, the final plague, when the people of God were instructed to do just that, take a lamb without blemish and to sacrifice that lamb and to take the blood and smear it on the door frames of their houses because what would happen in that final plague is the angel of death was going to go move throughout Egypt and the firstborn over every household was going to be struck dead and the Passover lamb the the blood on the doorposts would be a sign to the angel of death to pass over that home and to deliver them from death And ultimately, this story would move on to God delivering his people out of Egypt. And so this Passover festival was a time to remember God's triumphant act of deliverance. And specifically, how he delivered the people from death. 
And so as we consider this time of day, the day of preparation of Passover, the irony here is that Jesus is being prepared to be slaughtered. He's being prepared to be sacrificed. And his blood would be the covering over our lives to to save us from sin and that angel of death would pass over us so that just as the people of God experience God's deliverance, we too would experience deliverance through Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so as we consider this Passover preparation, we're reminded of John the Baptist's words in John chapter 1. If we turn there to John 1 verse 29, when John was with his disciples, he turned to them. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here in John 19, on the day of preparation for the Passover, Jesus himself is being prepared to be the final Passover lamb. The lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world by delivering us from our bondage to sin. So as we think of Jesus as the lamb of God, we think deliverance. We think deliverance from slavery to sin. We think atonement, that his blood is the covering over the sin in our lives so that we can have forgiveness and peace with God. So let's keep moving along here in John 19. After all of these interactions and and, uh, Pilate presents Jesus once again to the crowd, at the end of verse 14, he says to the Jews, Behold your king. Behold your king. Now we don't know what's going on in Pilate's heart and in his mind and what he actually believes about Jesus my hunch is he's really wrestling with who Jesus is. But in, at the end of all this, he presents Jesus to the, the Jews and he says, Behold your king. Now, whether he's saying that sarcastically or not, we're not really sure. But here again, John, the author, is using this ironic presentation to present Jesus to us for who he really is. So I want to invite you again to behold our king and consider the ways we've looked at him today in this passage, that as we consider the king and we gaze upon him, we see him as the suffering servant, the one who came to provide peace between us and God, who came to offer healing for the broken areas of our lives. He came as the second Adam to reverse the effects of sin and death and to bring new life. He came as the son of God with power and authority. He's the king of a different kind of kingdom, and we can turn to him, we can trust him, as the one who's in charge. And he came as the Lamb of God to deliver us from slavery and bondage in sin. So today, as we behold the King, I want to ask a final question. How will you respond to the King? How will you respond to the King? So let me just lead us in what response might look like. And I think the first step would be simply to behold Jesus, to gaze upon him, to see him for how he's been presented to us in this passage. And in the season of Lent, Lent kind of lends itself to us maybe uh, lingering with Jesus more and gazing upon him more. Maybe we've given something up for Lent or maybe it's not too late to give something up in order to intentionally gaze upon Jesus on a more regular basis. So one act of response to the king might be to set aside some 
things in your life in order to gaze upon Jesus more regularly and more fully. But today, even as we gaze upon him, I want to invite you in the quiet of your heart to gaze upon Jesus right now. And I actually want to invite you to close your eyes and to consider what's available to us in Jesus. Consider what we've talked about today. And with your eyes closed and as you sort of in your mind's eye gaze upon Jesus, I want to ask, what are you asking Jesus for today? So just kind of reflect on that question. Jesus, I want to gaze upon you and then begin to ask yourself, what am I asking Jesus for today? Maybe you're asking him for peace. Maybe you're asking him for healing. Maybe it's emotional healing. Maybe it's spiritual healing. Maybe it's physical healing. Maybe you're asking him for deliverance from sinful patterns of behavior. Or maybe you're asking him for a deeper experience of the fullness of life in him. Maybe you're asking him to guide and direct your life. Maybe you're going through a time of decision or difficult circumstances and you need him as the king of kings to give some guidance and direction. Maybe you're asking him for a demonstration of his power to intervene in some impossible circumstances. And maybe as you gaze upon him, you're simply asking him for more of himself. Maybe your heart's desire is simply more of Jesus. So just think about those things and reflect upon them. As you gaze upon Jesus, what are you asking Jesus for today? And now as you think about that, I encourage you maybe to, to continue thinking about it as you, as you go throughout your day and this week. But I want to invite us to come to the table. And as we come to the table today and we... Um, present the bread and the cup. Really, this is an opportunity for us to behold the Lamb, behold our King, to gaze upon Jesus in a very tangible way. And we acknowledge that this bread represents his body, which was broken for us. And this cup represents his blood, which was poured out for us. And so as we come to the table, we pray, Jesus would you nourish us? We desire more of you. As we gaze upon you today, we want to feast on you as well. And so, Jesus, would you nourish us? Would you feed us? Help us to receive from you every spiritual blessing that you desire to pour out into our hearts and lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so I would invite you to take your elements that you've prepared to take your bread or cracker and simply to hold it and maybe to gaze upon that symbol that this bread represents Jesus' body, which was broken for you. Let's take together. And then take the cup. And be reminded that this cup represents Jesus' blood, which he poured out for you. Let's receive from him today as we drink together. And let's pray. Jesus, 
we want to gaze upon you today. We want to gaze upon you in the days to come. And as we fix our eyes on you, we invite you to meet our every need. And as we considered earlier, you know, what we're asking of you individually, what each one of us is asking of you, Jesus, we just invite you to nourish us. Help us to receive from you today what it is that our souls need most. So we pray for your peace. We pray for your healing. We pray for your forgiveness. We pray for your guidance and direction. We pray for your power to be at work. We pray that we would experience the fullness of life in you. So meet us where we're at and fill us, we pray, in your name. Amen. And as we go from here, may I just give a word of blessing over us in, in benediction here. So if you like to receive a blessing uh, with open hands, maybe you want to open your hands, and if you want to close your eyes, you can do that. Uh, but let me just pronounce this blessing over you. So as you go from here, may you go with your eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. And as you gaze upon him, may Jesus meet the deepest needs of your heart and soul. May he fill you with his presence, his peace, his love, and forgiveness. And we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.